people that are starting a new business, a new innovative business, are going to find it a lot easier to get money to get started. The likelihood of a fintech startup failing is twice as high as a regular startup. There is a risk that this project will go wrong and that the risk that it will go wrong is 90%. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission, ASIC, is pairing up with its Singaporean counterpart to encourage more fintech startups from both countries. It's offering financial technology fintech startups a deal. You come under our wing and limit your size to start with, and we'll help you through the process of setting up. It'll be interesting to see whether that actually does attract the right people and the right innovators. That's Philippa Ryan. Lecturer and barrister, University of Technology, Sydney. She's researching the legal implications of the way fintechs do business. ASIC doesn't want to be seen to be an organisation that should have been on top of the problems that arise. It's, ma it's mainly the government regulators. Some are taking a wait-and-see approach, and I think that's not the right way forward. This move by ASIC is the latest in a series of measures designed to keep up with business innovation. So why the collaboration with Singapore? I think it's important to understand that Australia's had a free trade agreement with Singapore since 2003. And that was the first free trade agreement entered into since New Zealand in 1983. Singapore itself has some certain qualities that really suit doing business with Australia. So most business in Singapore is done in English, even though it's only one of four languages that are official languages in Singapore. And also it has overtaken Switzerland as the major global wealth centre of the world. So in 2015, there was more than $1.5 trillion worth of assets held by companies in Singapore. This comes off the back of ASIC announcing that they're going to set up some sort of regulatory sandbox. What is a sandbox and how does it work? Okay, so sandbox is a word that's been around in this context, in the fintech context, only for a very short amount of time. I think one of the first to use it is a Boston company that was, it's a, it's a not-for-profit, but it was set up and funded by some pretty hard-hitting private companies like Thomson Reuters and Amazon. That was established a few years ago and the idea was to provide support to innovators who want to work in the fintech space but are doing business in a way that is so new that it's difficult to know what the regulators are going to think about how they're doing that business. And obviously it's got connotations of starting small, being childish. The sandbox idea is you, you learn how to make mistakes and you learn how to um, cooperate in a small space and in a safe space. It's like a safe harbour idea within regulation. So what ASIC means when they say they're setting up a sandbox is this is our regulator saying we will give you a little bit of a safe harbour and we will try and waive certain compliance rules, certain licensing rules to make sure you can get off the ground without feeling too worried about whether what you're doing is so crazy that you're going to be sued or get caught by the regulator. And if we don't give them a safe space, they'll do it anyway. And that creates risk. To give a little bit more detail to that, one of the things that ASIC has suggested is that if you want to set up, for example, a fintech service and you want to provide financial advice or a financial service of some sort, ASIC can say, we will allow you to fall within the sandbox protection but you can't have more than 100 retail clients. And of those clients, no one can invest more than a certain amount. So ASIC's trying to say, you operate in a small space on a low scale to start with. Let's see how you go. And let's see where our regulations go and our compliance rules as you develop. 
And if we're all talking to each other, we can work out how to do this legitimately. And that will then hopefully keep all the rogues and all of the fraudsters at bay. What are the sort of things that tech startups, for example, fintech startups might be falling into the trap of in your experience? There's probably three big areas of exposure. So if a fintech startup wants to do business with a client that they don't know, that because it's being con- business is being conducted online or they might be recruiting customers online, it's very difficult to make sure you know who your client is. In this new way of doing business, know your client is a very big question. How do you know who you're doing business with if you've only ever conducted business online? The next one is probably... Um, electronic signatures. So these new startups are going to want to enter into contracts with with customers and investors who are going to sign some sort of authority or document or into into an agreement that they're going to want, everybody's going to want it to be an enforceable arrangement in the courts. And signatures are a very, very old school, very important part of how we do business. But the question is, do we transition to electronic signatures? The third thing I think that's a very big issue on top of those two, the know your client and electronic signature issues, the third one is the kind of business that's being done. So it's not just the way that business is being done, but it's the kind of business. And that means we're talking about online, using the blockchain, using um, software that will enable transactions to occur, not necessarily with humans controlling them, but software controlling them. Now, how do you How do you enforce that contract or how do you defend it or complain about it? How do you sue someone you don't even know? These these are the questions that are being raised. We've seen some vulnerability with the blockchain or the use of the blockchain, I should say. Does this raise questions about the need for something like this? So Ethereum is using the blockchain. Ethereum is an organisation that is designing software, smart contracts specifically, that is using the blockchain And they have been Ethereum and its smart contract software has been used by an organization called the DAO or DAO. Now, the DAO has recently raised some funds. In the middle of May, they began a crowdfunding exercise and very quickly raised $120 million worth of Ether. Now, Ether is, it's like a token of value very like Bitcoin. It's an alternative to a currency. And the crowdfunding project was all about asking all of the investors to not only contribute money, but then at a certain point, and I think it was the 28th of May, everybody was going to vote on a certain crowdfunded project. The problem they've got is that they've been hacked. So the attacker has written an open letter to Dow saying, well, thank you very much for the exposure in your blockchain software. You created that exposure. The bug existed because you wrote it that way. At this time, it's about $60 million worth of Ether that has been stolen or displaced from a blockchain. This is the first big exposure for Ethereum and it's going to change the way people are going to view Ethereum for a little while. And and unfortunately, the value of Ether has just plummeted as a result of it. It's just that this was done with a slightly more idealistic and probably naive intention, which was to get a whole lot of investors to share a mutual fund and decide together what to do with this for the, be- for the better good. And nobody realised the vultures were circling and waiting to jump in and find any exposure they could. So although they've been describing the blockchain as riskless, I think this is the first example we've seen of how risky it can be. 
and that we can't trust it to the extent that the Ethereum developers have suggested in the past. I think all the regulators are going to have to take note because if the regulars, regulators don't, the rogues and even well-intentioned developers are going to come up with ways to use the blockchain to solve whatever problem exists in that market or in that context. So it may be for good or it may be that there's a scam sitting behind whatever's going on. These issues are going to arise no matter what. So this is going to raise questions for the regulators. That's Philip Orion, barrister and lecturer in the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney. I'm Jenny Henderson, Assistant Business and Economy Editor, and you can read more about fintech and the digital economy on the Conversations Business and Economy page. Also, keep an eye out for our up-and-coming series on the blockchain. Our theme music is by Ben Sound, and if you like listening to Business Briefing, rate us on iTunes. You can also download more episodes there too.